Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Caitlin. I'm one of the campus pastors at Bethel, and I've uh, been filling in for Pastor Phil over the past few weeks. I get one more week with you guys, so we're actually going to wrap up this series because next week I want to tell you one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Uh, but we're going to wrap up our series today that, that we're calling Minnesota Ice, and we're talking about how to break through the awkwardness that we sometimes experience in relationships in order to actually help people find real and true community that actually gives them a purpose, that gives them hope, and that actually displays is the full power and promise of what the church can be. But in order to wrap this up, I have to tell you a story about my childhood. Uh, One of my favorite places was and still remains the art museum in Minneapolis, the public art museum, the one that's free, which was the best part when you were a kid, right? And one of the things that I loved there is in in the lobby between the children's theater and the art museum, there's this giant glass sun. Has anybody been there and seen it? No. So let me describe it to you. One person. All right. So this glass sun, it's this hand-blown piece of art. And the thing is just absolutely massive. And it's hanging from there. And you read a little bit about it. It talks about how fragile it is. And when I was a kid, I always had this really dark, deep thought. Like I would look at it, right? And you could go up the levels and you could stand and watch. And I would look at it and I'd be like, man, imagine if that fell right? Which is probably the worst thought to have in an art museum where everything costs more than like anybody's life insurance policy. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, what if that thing fell? Just imagine all the glass and all the the shatters that would happen. You could never put that back together. It's this beautiful piece of art and yet it's incredibly, incredibly fragile. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like to love our neighbors well. And then loving our neighbors well, I I think we've all experienced and seen what it looks like in community for it to be really, really beautiful, right? What it looks like in community for us to love each other really well, for us to have each other's backs, for us to care for each other in some of our darkest moments, for us to actually have the type of community that we long for most, the one where we feel like we're really, truly known and where we're in it for each other. Now, how many of you guys have also experienced the other side of how fragile community can be? how hard it can be when relationships break up, how hard it can be when friendships dissolve, how hard it can be when you're in a church community and it no longer fits. Someone used the language for me of of leaving a church and they said, I grew to the point where I no longer fit in the community. And you hear the grief and the fragility in that of how hard it can be in community. You see, I remember having this moment when, when I was in seminary, and, uh, and as you guys probably know, in Christian communities, there's like this high value placed on marriage, which can make p- single people feel kind of lonely, right? And so I had this moment where I was out to dinner with a bunch of friends for, for a birthday, and I sat there and I just thought, man, if this is what community is, I think I could not spend another day of my life lonely, if community is us loving each other really well, if if community looks like us sitting here around the table, if community looks like us sharing our lives, this is so beautiful. And about a year and a half later, for one person in that group, the community felt really fragile as they deconstructed and reconstructed faith and as they felt challenges and weren't quite sure where they fit in. And so the same thing that felt really beautiful for me felt really fragile for another person. You see, we're going to encounter people as we're loving our neighbors and our coworkers and our family really well. We're going to encounter people where community is hard to come by because it feels so fragile, right? Where, where no matter how much we love and we care on them, no matter how much we're diving in for them, it's going to feel really vulnerable to entrust themselves to the community of another person. 
And so let's talk today about what we're inviting people into. The, the language I want to use for it is, is we're inviting people and we're being a part of, as we go out into the world, a covenant community. This language of covenant, it's, it's a word we don't use very often, right? We think about the covenants that were made between God and Abraham. We think about the covenants that were made uh, with Noah and God. We think about the covenants that are made throughout scripture between people, but we don't use that language very often anymore, right? Maybe weddings. Weddings might be the only place where we say that we're making a covenant with another person, but besides that, it's not like you call up your friends and you're like, hey, we're in a covenant friendship, right? Like me and you, they'd be like, we're in a what? I mean, I remember when I joined the Evangelical Covenant Church and I had to spend a whole Christmas telling my family that it was not coven and it was not convent, it was covenants. And I had to explain what that meant and where that language came from. This language of covenant community, here's what covenant community is. Here's what we're called to be as the church and here's what we're called to give the rest of the world. A covenant community is people that say, we are in this with each other. We've made a promise that until our dying breath, we will be in it for each other, that we're going to care for each other really well, that when tensions come, and they will, we're not going to back away, but we're going to stick it out. We're going to remain faithful to each other. We're going to make sure that there's no loneliness in here because we've committed our lives to each other. You see, some of us have friendships like that. We've never labeled it in that way, right? Some of us have people in our lives where we're sticking it out for each other. We're loving for each on each other. We're caring for each other. And some of us long really deeply for that. And we don't have it right now. And so let's talk about as the church, as we start to wrap up this Minnesota Ice series, let's talk about what it looks like for us to be a covenant community, the type of community that is, as we see in scripture and in the rest of the world, so incredibly attractional to the people around us. The first thing that we have to realize is just like that piece of art that I talked about at the beginning, covenant community, it is incredibly beautiful. When you experience the moment where you know the other person fully and they know you, there's no secrets and there's no shame. When you experience that, that time with another person where you sit and you just feel completely comfortable in silence with them. When you experience that type of love with another person where you're sharing meals and you're sharing dreams and you're sharing hopes and you're sharing fears, where you're able to actually say that you're scared or you're anxious or you're nervous and, and you're not worried about how that reflects on you, when we have that type of community, it is beautiful. And anyone who's been around people who have committed to stay and grow with each other, whether it's in a marriage or a friendship or a lifelong life group, a community group, they can testify that there's something that's so beautifully attractive about witnessing people who actually believe that community can be the best thing about our lives, who actually believe that this can be an opportunity for us to grow and for us to love each other deeply, where it can be a moment where iron sharpens iron. When people see that and when we experience it, it is incredibly beautiful. And it's a type of community that I think we would all say we long for the most. I mean, don't you guys hate like that awkward stage in a friendship where you're like, can I really say what I'm actually feeling right now? Like that's the worst stage I always think to be in with anybody where you're like, even at work, right? If you have that moment where you're like, am I safe to say that I thought that meeting was awful, <laughs> right? You have that moment where you're like, is this safe? Is this relationship or this community or this family, is it safe enough for me to truly show up as myself? We long for those experiences where we can truly be exactly who we are, exactly who God's created us to be. When we have people who I like to say love us but love Jesus more, that are going to meet us where we are and call us to who we should be. We long for it. I think we also all know that we see it so very little, don't we? I mean, man, it is hard to find those types of communities. 
where we feel safe enough to say exactly what we're thinking, where we can show up as we are, but, but be pulled forward into who God's creating us to be, where we actually feel like I'm, I'm safe, these can be my lifelong people, that's hard to find. And that's because covenant community, it's also really fragile. If we haven't experienced it for ourselves, all of us know people who have been deeply hurt by the very people who promised that they wouldn't, who have had to undo years of church wounds, who've been left impacted by broken marriages, who have had friendships dissolve or break up, or they lost what they thought were going to be trustworthy, lifelong groups. And we know that the fragility, it causes splinters when it breaks. It doesn't just impact one person, right? It hurts a whole community, and we have to grapple with learning how to recover and heal from a place that we thought was going to be our lifelong place. When we have to find this new community to replace this community that we just thought we would never leave, And yet, I think sometimes the very fragility, it can cut really deeply at the beauty it brings. And it can make us really hesitant to trust another community. But we were each designed for covenant community. Each of us, deep down in the way that God has knit and wired us, in the way that God has told this story from the beginning of time, knit into that has been the story of these people who long to have spaces where they can be vulnerable, where people can grow, and they can also teach each other, where people can be known, and yet in the middle of being fully known, can also be fully and deeply and truly loved. I mean, that is the story of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus came down... to to break down the barriers, to give us the type of covenant relationship with God that we've longed for most, where we know that we're safe and we're known and we're loved. And for some of us, those ideas feel a little bit scary, either because we've been hurt by community in the past or because we want to guard ourselves because we've seen it hurt other people or because we believe that a community like that is just not possible right now. It's not possible in a world that's just divisive. It's not possible in a world that's so polarized. It's not possible in a community where people are thinking and feeling different things. But the early church showed us just how possible it is. The early church, it it was a covenant community. The early church, it, it went beyond just being people who greeted each other once a week, but they actually became a place where lives were shared with each other. It began, wasn't just a place where people would gather together to hear this single message, but it became this place where the gospel was being preached daily to one another. Where day in and day out, they were reminding each other, this story is real and this story is true and this story has the power to change absolutely everything. I mean, imagine a community that reminded you of that in your darkest moments and on the hardest days. This is real, this is true. Resurrection happened, resurrection's coming again. You see this covenant community in the early church, they went beyond just knowing each other's names, like I, like I called you guys to do at the, the first message, right? To get to know names and get to know stories. They went beyond just people who knew names and knew stories, but they became people that actually knew what each other needed. And they stepped in the gap to fill it for each other. And they went beyond just sharing a part of their lives to being this community where everybody was known, flaws and all. And they were encouraged to take the next step in their journey with God. It was a beautiful community. And I think that if we do neighboring really well, this covenant community, it is the pinnacle of what it can look like to be a follower of Jesus in a broken world. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And this is a verse that, that a lot of you will know really well. It's perhaps one of the best known churches about, or verses about the early church. It's Acts 2, 42 through 47. And we'll read this together, and then we're going to dive into it a little bit deeper. So starting in verse 42, it says this. 
and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with how many of the people? All the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, it's not hard to see why we're ending on this passage in a series about neighboring, right? This was the early church who for the first time was spreading the message of, of who this Jesus was, of his resurrection and, then, and his death and his life and the way he lived and the way it was changing everything about them. I mean, in this same passage, in these same areas, we hear about this early church where they were speaking in each other's languages and they were understanding one another and they were sharing the gospel together and it's the story of this church that's loving each other so well that everybody in the community is in awe. I mean, think about that. Not just the people who already bought and believed the story of Jesus, but probably people who are still like, I think those guys are crazy, were in awe of the way that they loved each other. And then the scripture tells us that they added daily the numbers of those people who were in awe. That those people were so in awe of this community that they didn't just stand at a distance and say, man, that's really cool. I hope someday I can be a part of that. But they couldn't wait to get in the doors and be a part of a community that loved each other that well. I mean, this community spoke to the longing of each of their hearts to have a place where they're fully known, to have a place where hope is spoken of, to have this place that, that shares together, this place that breaks bread together, this place that says, you're in need, let me help, and says to one another, now you're in need, let me help you too. I mean, it's this beautiful story of this early church that is, that is so dedicated to one another and so dedicated to their community that people can't wait to be a part of it. And isn't that where the series ends, right? Not just that we love our neighbors really well so that our neighbors know that they're loved, but that we love our neighbors really well so that our neighbors know that the story of Jesus is true and that hope is real and that resurrection has come and is coming and that they can be a part of a place that loves them really well too. I mean, that's where it all ends. This language that's being used to describe this community, it's beautiful. It says that they're devoted to one another, they're filled with awe, they're together, they're glad, they're generous, they're full of favor, and the community around them notices. How many of you guys want a community like that? I mean, a community that's devoted, a community that's glad, that's generous, a community that's together, even despite all of the challenges that will come upon the early church. You see, the first thing that people notice about this community is that the family of God is authentic. That's the invitation that, that we're invited to live into here, that we're invited to bring out to the rest of the world too. Far be it from this covenant community to be this place where people can hide or perform this covenant community leaves no room for people who desire to deceive each other or to put on airs and pretend like they're better than they actually are. Instead, this community, they know each other really deeply. They devote themselves to gathering together and they're fully practicing the word of God. They believe that God is active and God is living and God's moving and God is breathing through his spirit in the world today and that God has invited them to be a part 
of that action that transforms everything they do. And when they gather together, I am sure that there's laughter. Everyone knows that any good meal and any good community, there's always laughter and there's jokes. I mean, I, I heard this story once about Jesus's conversation with Peter when he came back and how it was sort of like this big cosmic joke for him to say to him, go out and catch some more fish and reel it back in. In this moment where he doesn't know who Jesus is, he's like, you know what? Go catch some more fish and bring it back in. And I read it once and somebody said that they're sure that the disciples erupted in laughter on this prank that had just been played on Peter. And so if that was Jesus and that was the model Jesus brought to his disciples, this early church I'm sure was full of laughter and pranks and fun. And I'm sure there was room for gladness and celebration with people who were celebrating. And I'm sure there was space for people to ask at the table, what did you see God do today? When you were out and you were preaching the gospel, when you were out and you were sharing your food, when you were out and you were just in community, what did you see God do? What did he do? It's this place that isn't for the faint of heart, but it's not exclusive either, because I'm sure that in that same space, there was room for difficult conversations, and there was room for mourning and grieving. I'm sure there was room for people to still keep saying the words that we see the disciples repeating, we thought he was the one, and them to say, let me tell you why he is. I'm sure there was space for them to say, this is really hard to reorient my life like this, and I feel really vulnerable. And them to say, let me tell you why it's worth it. I'm sure there was space for them to say, you know, this is hard because, because I believe and I trust this story, but my family doesn't. I'm sure there was room for them to sit at that table and grieve and mourn and pray together. That's the beauty of this early community that they shared everything with each other. We also see in the story that the family of God is attentive to each other. We're told that they ate together, they shared all things in common, and selling what they had, they gave to those in need, not afraid to share what was most precious to them. There wasn't this sense of of them hoarding or protecting what they had. They wanted to give it freely because they saw it as us as a community and not just me in the community. They paid attention to the people who showed up at the table and hadn't had a meal in days. I'm sure they knew who needed help with laundry or who needed kids watched or who just needed somebody to sit and listen for a little bit. They weren't afraid to do the messy work of what it looks like for us to love people whose lives are not put together just like each of us. They knew what it was like to hold loosely to what was theirs that they could respond to people who were in need. So they shared their lives and they also shared their things. I mean, that is radical, right? So it's no wonder why this church, why this early church that shared things together, not only their lives, but also their stuff, why it was so awe-inspiring for the world around them. It's no wonder why this strange community where you could come as you are and yet not leave where you were actually attracted people to be a part of it. It's no wonder why a community that longed to see people who loved each other deeply, who actually cared about the welfare of each other. It's no wonder why daily numbers were being added to who they were. It's no wonder why a community like that wouldn't let a single person among them be in need. And they had people desiring to experience what it could possibly be like in their lives to be cared for so deeply that people know their full story and love them so dearly in the middle of it. You see, we each long for a covenant community. We long for a community that promises it'll stay, even when things get messy. We long for a place where we're more than just a number, but we're actually a person. We long for a community that's responsive when we're in need. We long for a community that sees us as beloved, 
that sees us as being made in the image of God. And if we're honest, we long for a place that wants us to see who God made us to be, and they'll cross bridges to help us get there. We long for a community, as hard as it can sometimes be, we long for a community where we can show up as we are, and they'll say, we see you as you are, but we're not going to let you stay. We're going to take you further into who God says you are. There is a community around you, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, that longs to know that they have access to a community like that, that longs to know that there is a place and there are people that will meet you right there. But developing this type of community, it is risky and it's hard because it invites us to radically reorient our lives. Those are two big, bold words, right? To radically reorient our lives. The same radical reorientation that we see in the church in Acts 2 of gathering together and being willing to go as far as, as holding to their things loosely, it's repeated again in Acts 4. This is Acts 4, 32 through 37, if you have your Bible. So Acts 4, 32 through 37 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. In this new church, we see these three important reorientations to doing life. The first is that this church was reoriented to genuine boldness. I mean, I read this passage, and I'm not going to lie. I'm like, that is bold. I mean, that is a bold way of living. They were radically reoriented to, to gather together to worship, that that was the focal point of their day was gathering with other believers. They gave to each other freely. They preached and they proclaimed in dangerous situations. They prioritized serving their community. And they talked together, as you see throughout Acts, about how to do it best. They have a conversation at one point where they're like, okay, we need to divide and conquer this work, so let's entrust the work to some of the other apostles. Let's entrust the work to other people to go out and do this work. Let's ensure that everybody is being cared for. They welcomed people in in the church who had once hurt them. I mean, the whole story of Paul is about this man who had once hurt the church who's welcomed in, knowing the risk and the pain and the frustration. And their boldness was a marker of this young church, this desire to work with the Holy Spirit, to actually believe and see that the power of Christ can spread. And it was central to their days when they woke up, they were thinking about it. When they went to bed, they were thinking about it. They were in this community that would desire to show the full power and promise of the gospel. The second thing is this church was reoriented to generous giving. Giving was at the core of this young church's heart. They gave gladly, it says, and they served each other in the process. Giving poured from who they were called to be. They knew as people who had been entrusted with a lot that their call was to give just as much as they had been entrusted to. They saw everything that they owned and everything that they had as an opportunity to love and serve each other. And thinking just about neighboring and, and the fact that it's winter, what if we felt that way about our snowblowers, right? What if we felt that way about our shovels? What if we just thought, you know what? I have this gift. I'm going to give it 
and, and ensure that my neighbors are able to clear off their sidewalks? What if in the office we, we were like, I'm entrusted with a lot of authority. I'm going to learn how to give it away to my team so that they feel loved and cared about too. What if in our families we saw the things that we had been gifted a lot of and we said, how can I use that as an opportunity to serve and love the people around me? The next thing we see about this church is that this church was reoriented to great grace. Because this church knew the gospel of Jesus and they knew its goodness and they knew its power, they continually reminded each other how crucial and critical it was to remember the resurrection to remember that this story wasn't just a story that was being told, to remember that it wasn't this fanciful wish, but that it was a real story about a God who really did come to earth and a God who really did live life among his disciples, live life among his people who taught them daily, this God who, who gave up his life for them and who resurrected a real resurrection. The great grace that Jesus offered was one of the most interesting things to them and about them. And they dedicated themselves to understanding it and to sharing it. As people who had received a lot of grace, they lived their life to give a lot of grace too. But we see throughout Acts that this way of living, it's for everyone, but it's not chosen by everyone. In fact, in just the next chapter, after chapter four, we're told about this couple that wasn't prepared for this radical reorientation around authenticity and generosity that this community had. That it was hard for them to envision a community where they actually could show up and be authentic, where they didn't have to hide themselves. In doing so, they missed out on the beauty of what the church could be. They missed out on the opportunity to be a part of a community that would love each other through hard moments, that would love each other through the moments that you wanted to hide yourself, this community that really cared enough to walk with you through difficult decisions that would help you fight the desire to just back away. These stories and acts, it reminds us that covenant community and living in covenant community, it's a choice. You see, it's a choice to be all in in discovering this more transformational walk with God. It's a choice to be all in and connecting with each other in meaningful ways, to be all in in serving our Christian brothers and sisters locally and globally as Christ modeled and as Christ taught us to, to be all in and reaching out in Jesus' name to people who are lost and hurting right here and around the world, and to be all in in generosity as God taught us to do it. See, I'm this person where in my life I really deeply desire to bring authenticity and vulnerability. And that comes actually from fighting against some of my deepest desires. I don't know how many of you guys know the Enneagram. Do I have some other Enneagram nerds? I know Nicole is. Um, I, I'm an Enneagram nerd. Uh, it's for me has been like one of the best tools to discover who I am. It's basically like the Myers-Briggs, but new, right? And it has seven numbers instead of letters. It's way easier to remember. Eight numbers instead of letters. Nine numbers instead of letters. <laughs> And, uh, and the way that the Enneagram work is, works is the Enneagram tells you about your core desires, right? So I always say like versus Myers-Briggs, which like tells me that I'm like super extroverted and all that. Like this tells me like the things I don't want to hear about myself. So much so that when I took the Enneagram for the first time, I scored as an Enneagram 3, which is like the performer, right? Um, like a ton of politicians have been Enneagram 3s. It's pretty gross. Uh, so I got the results and I was like, absolutely not, <laughs> Like, I do not want to be a three. And I read about threes, and it was like, threes often have trouble with vulnerability. And I was like, uh-uh, no, that's not going to be me. And it was like, threes often, like, put on a face. And I was like, uh-uh, no, this, like, it hits way too close to home, so it's not going to be me. And so I actually took the test again. I paid to take it again, and I threw it. 
right? Which is like kind of a classic Enneagram 3 thing to do, like the strategy behind it. So I took the test again and I threw it to be what's called an Enneagram 7. They're, they're the fun ones. Like they're the ones that show up and they bring the party every time. And I was like, this is me. And so for like three months, I told like my whole workplace, I was like, I'm an Enneagram 7. I'm so much fun. Look at me. I'm the life of the party. This is great. And then one of my coworkers was like, Caitlin, you're not a seven. And I was like, no, look at all the things I like to do. Like, I have so many interests. I'm, I'm so interesting. And he was like, Caitlin, you only do things if you think you can reasonably be good at them. Like, he's like, you're never going to run a marathon because you know you're not going to be good at it. But you might join boxing because you could be good at it, right? And so it took this moment for me to sit down and go, oh, yeah, like, there's this thing about me. <laughs> that like from childhood, and this is me getting vulnerable. We've been together for weeks, right? So we're all, we're all family now. It took me realizing that as a kid, for some reason, I had started to tell myself that I was what I did. I don't know if anyone else can relate. That you like started to absorb the message that like if I can just perform well enough, I can be in community. And, and that community, it, they don't really want to know what's actually going on under the surface. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because that's a vulnerable moment, but I'm sure you felt that way at any time of your life. Like, if I can just perform well enough, I'll be accepted. And I don't have to let people know what's actually going on under the surface. I, I can kind of put on a good face. I, I have to pretend at this stage like everything's good enough because it feels vulnerable to actually say things feel broken. I'm hurt. I'm struggling. And so it took me a few years to sort of take these results that said that that's my automatic wiring to kind of say, okay, well, I don't want that, right? Like I was like, I, I don't want the exhaustion of showing up in every group feeling like I have to be my best self. I don't want the exhaustion of showing up thinking that if I don't do things perfectly, I won't be accepted. I don't want the exhaustion of, of being in relationships and constantly feeling like I have to put on a face because whatever's going on in here isn't good enough for community. And so I started fighting against it really hard. And I started saying, okay, well, if that's the case, I'm going to take some really brave and bold steps to be authentic. I'm going to risk being hurt in community out of a deep desire to be really authentic with the people around me. If I'm, if I'm sitting in a meeting and I have a disagreement, I'm not just going to say everything's really great. I, I might actually say, actually, I'm worried about it. I remember one day I called one of my friends, one of my coworkers, who, who also is an Enneagram nerd, and I, I had just finished a meeting, and I literally like praised myself after the meeting. It was the middle of COVID, and, and when you're in stress, and you do weird things, right? And so it was the middle of COVID, and I got off this meeting, and I, I was like, man, I did so good. I was so agreeable. I was just like, yep, that sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah, nope, that sounds perfect. I see no concerns. And I got off the meeting, and I'm praising myself, and all of a sudden I went, oh, no. I didn't feel that this whole meeting. There was something that was happening outside that didn't match what was going on inside. And so it's been a journey for me of embracing authenticity and vulnerability in all of my relationships, which I think that's the core of what covenant community looks like, is for us to feel safe enough to be authentic and vulnerable with each other. And so every year for the past few years, about four or five years, I reread this book that I would really recommend for anybody else who also struggles with that feeling. It's this book called Scary Close by a guy named Donald Miller. And if you've been enough, uh, been around Christian circles long enough, you might know Donald Miller wrote a few books back in the day. He wrote Blue Like Jazz. He wrote A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. All these books about what it looked like to be on this journey. And this time around, though, Donald tells the story of his life. And he tells the story of a life that had gotten really exhausting. 
tells the story of, of this life where he had felt like he had to show up perfectly so often and what it looks like to actually embrace vulnerability. He actually tells the story in the beginning of this conversation with Bob Goff, another name you might recognize from Love Does and, and other books like that. And he tells the story of, of his, his engagement breaking down. And because Donald Miller, Miller was sort of a Christian celebrity, it was very public. And he called him, and, and he just felt like, I just want to hide. I just want to run away. I, I don't even want to be here anymore. I don't want people to see me. And he said that Bob Goff kept repeating to him, Donald, you're really good at relationships. And he was like, no, I'm not. And he was like, Donald, you're really good at relationships. You're really good at relationships. You're really good at relationships. And he just kept reminding him of who he really was, that he was really good at relationships, and that this failure didn't make up an entire lifetime. And so he tells this story of what it looks like to actually come to terms with being fully loved in community, what it looks like to actually believe that you can show up as your full self and be cared for in it. And this past year, when I read it, I was struck by this story that Donald tells in it. It's a story he tells uh, about this doctor who was hired to change the outcomes for patients who struggle with seeing the purpose behind life. You see, Donald, after all of that, he ended up going to this intensive therapy. It's called Onsite. It's down in Tennessee. You basically go and you live there, and one of the things that you do is you don't get to show up and you don't get to tell people what you do for a living. And the people who go there, they're they're celebrities, they're musicians, they're people who who sometimes deeply love Jesus and are struggling to to actually see themselves as Jesus calls them. They're, They're people who have gotten so caught up in fame and so caught up in playing a role that they don't know how to, what it means to be human anymore. And they're experiencing some sort of failure, some sort of crisis, and they go there. And one of the rules is you don't get to say what you do for a living. You just have to be loved by community for who you are, not for the things you can bring to it. And in that, he, he learns the story of this doctor that was hired by this hospital because they were having trouble turning around their psychiatric unit. They couldn't figure out how to help people see the purpose. And this doctor gave this prescription to this hospital and the prescription, he writes, was, was remarkably pragmatic. He says there were three recommendations. The first one was have a project to work on. Give them some reason to get out of bed in the morning, preferably something that serves other people. Have a redemptive perspective on life's challenges. That is, when something difficult happens, recognize the ways that its difficulty could also serve and grow you. And share your life with a person or with people who will love you unconditionally. The guy, his name was Frankel, and he called this treatment logotherapy, which is a really fancy way of saying a therapy of meaning. And remarkably, he says, it worked. He was put in charge of the mental health division of the Viennese hospital system because they had lost too many patients to suicide. And when Frankel came aboard, he had more than 30,000 suicidal patients that were under his care. And the challenge was phenomenal. And so Frankel gets to work and he creates these community groups for patients. And he teaches the counselors to identify projects that patients could contribute to that would improve the life of everybody there. And he gives them serious work that gives them a reason to get out of bed in the morning Frankel also had patients circle difficult experiences they had had, and he let them grieve them. And in the middle of grieving them, he also asked them to list some benefits that had come from that moment of pain. The results of the program, Donald Miller writes, was transformational. Not one patient desired to commit suicide under Frankel's watch. I mean, this story is remarkable. 
This story is about what it looks like for us to have a life that's filled with meaning, what it looks like for us to be in a community that loves us, what it looks like for us to have people who will help us both grieve and also see the opportunities that come out of difficult situations, what it looks like for us to have people who give us a reason to get out of bed and some work to do a project to work on. He said a redemptive perspective. And he said, sharing your life with people who love unconditionally. That's the way to have a life that's filled with purpose. There's one place that I know of where we are invited over and over again to have these three elements be a deep part of our life. It's the body of Christ. It's the one place where these three elements are seen in spades. We're invited to bring to work the kingdom of God in our daily interactions. Not just the big picture projects we work on, not just our life goals, but in the way we treat each other, we are invited to bring the kingdom of God to life. For people to actually see in us that there's a redemptive purpose, that that things are happening, that there is a God who cares, there is a hope that's possible. We're invited to be a part of that. We're invited to have the perspective that at the end of all things, redemption is coming and redemption is already breaking through. That the end of this story doesn't end in sadness, but it ends in gladness. We're invited to remind each other of that daily in our interactions, that, that as we're grieving, we're invited to grieve with people. But then scripture says we don't grieve as people without hope. We're invited in the middle of it to say, yes, life is hard, and that is not the end of the story. Yes, things are broken, and redemption is coming. Yes, this is difficult, and God is with us in the middle of it. And we're invited to love one another unconditionally, without conditions on our love. I mean, that's radical in and of itself, right? To love each other and to not expect that the other person will show up worthy of love every day, but just to keep loving. We're invited to love each other deeply, and we're invited to love each other purposefully, to be intentional about it. And when you think about that community, are there neighbors or coworkers or family members that need that? that need to know that they have spaces where they can show up and be fully loved, where there's purpose behind what they do in the day-to-day. I mean, that's the hope that the gospel brings to the world, and that's the hope that we're invited to bring with us into every situation.